Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 55 Magician I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, I finally get to do a show on this Batman in BVS. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Can you believe how fast time flies? Time is so precious, and you have the freedom to choose from so many different ways to spend it. So thank you for listening. I'm sincerely grateful that you chose to spend some of that time with me so that we can appreciate these films together. I love that these films hold up to scrutiny and analysis over time, because as we've shown with other works, often time is the last ingredient needed to get that flash of insight or a new avenue of appreciation for a piece of art. That's how I came to the topic of this episode. 500 days since the premiere of BVS, and while the landscape has changed and the horizon looks different, I'm still learning new things about that film that make me love it more. And even better when it's something that goes to an issue that I had with the film from the very first time I saw it. By nature and by profession, I'm always very concerned with timelines, motives, and knowledge, or framed in another way, means, motive, and opportunity. And I have this reflex to ask whether the person had the information necessary at the time to be motivated to act the way that they do to expect the outcome that they desire. Cases are often a collision of competing narratives, and pegging those points down in a provable way is going to dictate whose version of events is most persuasive. Applied to fiction, it's not necessarily a measure of quality, but it can impact the reality of the story. And whether that matters depends. But after a lifetime of Superman versus Batman matchups that made no sense, had holes, leaps in logic, and contradictions, I had high hopes for the logical framework forcing the fight in BVS. And I knew it. Back in episode 21, I said, quote, I know my expectations are unrealistically high. When I think we've yet to see a plan of this caliber in all their history together, end quote. I was talking about Batman's plan actually taking into account every avenue available to Superman, and even better if it could only be executed by Batman and didn't need kryptonite. And in truth, I couldn't truly conceive of such a plan myself, and I even put out a call to listeners in that episode to share if they had any ideas, because none of us are as smart as all of us. But I still shouldn't have been surprised or disappointed when Batman did need kryptonite, and to me, his plan seemed to be full of holes. I kept those concerns to myself, since BVS was facing an onslaught of other criticisms, and because I had already understood that the answers aren't always immediate. Sometimes it takes time to see a solution. And I'm glad I did, because I think I have the answer for at least a few of those issues. And one of those concerns recently became the punchline for a two-minute Justice League action short entitled It's a Trap. It involves Luthor baiting Superman into sending him through a wall and into a particular building where he's laid his trap. Yet in protest, Superman is incredulous that Luthor could have predicted that specific course of events. It's a trap. Of course it's a trap. My brilliant plan worked just as I knew it would. This was your plan? 
What if I hadn't even landed on the ground when I first got here? What if I just picked you up and flew you into the stratosphere? How could you know I'd knock you into this floor of this specific building? Well, because I'm Lex Luthor. I know how you think, Superman. Know thine enemy. <laughs> the short ends with Lex getting his comeuppance when Superman makes his own improbable prediction, kind of undermining the criticism some, and the short also takes a swipe at the concept of the kryptonite spear, which we've already covered exhaustively in episode 44. But at its heart, I completely sympathize with the criticism, because I held it myself for so long. How could Batman have known Superman was going to take him to that rooftop? What if Superman had done this or that? Does Batman's plan make sense? I didn't really have a good answer, at least not one that satisfied me. Most of the answers were cheats, shifting from the internal logic of the scene, the, the diegetic reality, to meta-analysis or commentary on the creative intentions, requirements, and destiny. Of course, it could and would go down, but why this way? And my absence of answers was made just a shade more annoying by the fact that the film does deliberately discipline you for wanting to see a Batman and Superman fight. Instead of an eagerly anticipated appealing action sequence, if you're sincerely empathizing with the characters in the moment, it's tragic, hard to watch, and you cringe watching these heroes descend to their absolute lowest points. You realize that your bloodlust for a fight night billed as the greatest gladiator match in the history of the world puts you in the company of Lex Luthor, and if you take the film seriously, that should make you a little uncomfortable. The film is commenting on us, the audience, as much as anything else. That dose of reality made the moniker's mandatory marquee matchup a bit of a bitter pill, but it made its overall message much more meaningful. Nonetheless, I'm carried through it by the themes, emotion, and artistry, but it still always bothered me that it seemed like we just had another contrived conflict that we couldn't completely justify. How could Batman have known? What if Superman did something else? And the answer hit me like a lightning bolt after I got the same reactions to a classic card trick at a dinner party. The trick is called Out of This World, created by magician Paul Curry in 1942. It's often billed as the trick that fooled Winston Churchill. He was completely baffled, as were the bright and intelligent participants in my performance. How could you have known? What if I did something else? Well, you know the answer. It's magic. And to myself, I thought, how could I have forgotten that Batman 2 was a magician? For all my disclaimers about fantasy magic, you might not suspect at how much I love real magic. And that's how I think of the performance of illusions, tricks, and effects. To me, that was always real magic. Conversely, the supernatural, paranormal, or fantastical was often the imaginary thing. I loved the wonder of it as a child, and as an adult, it still captivates me on several levels. There's the psychology, the neuroscience, and cognitive behaviors, and our brain's blind spots built into this ancient art. And understanding and appreciation for magic is immediately applicable to lateral thinking, perception management, and social intelligence. As a coder and a sci-fi fan, you have to become comfortable with black boxes, unknown processes within, be it calling to a function or subroutine or a particular piece of technology, which still yield reliable outputs with given inputs. Once you've built a base of these, you can break down illusions into smaller parts or even conceive of new ones on your own. The analog and manual nature of the research and the apprenticeship model are familiar and appealing to me. And finally, on a philosophical level, 
level, it's filled with nuance, complexity, and paradox. It's entertaining deception that demands a degree of consent and acknowledgement of the performance. A trick that's terrifying outside the context of a performance, and yet even in that circle you can get swept up wondering if there isn't something supernatural at work. Like the name of Penn & Teller's current TV show, we ask the magician to fool us, something we rarely wish for outside the context of illusion. And, like any art form, it has styles, specialties, trends, and history. Too much to totally take on, but to give you a roadmap for this episode... First, we'll look at the many ways magic matches the Batman mythos and tradition. Then, we'll briefly look at the magic of movie making and these filmmaking magicians. Next, we'll consider the evidence that this Batman is indeed a magician. And finally, we'll apply that analysis to his fight with Superman. So I know this is a Batman episode, but Batman is inexorably linked to and inspired by Superman. So, naturally, all the influences on Superman would affect his younger brother. And when we talk about the creation of Superman, we usually look back to ancient mythological figures like Hercules, or contemporary inspirations like Doc Savage, John Carter, or Hugo Danner. But less often do we mention the figures who set the spirit of the age for the likes of those characters. Why was there this sudden influx of muscular masculine marvels? Professor of Cultural History John F. Casson proposes that movements like Teddy Roosevelt's brand of muscular Christianity, or the Boy Scouts of America were crystallized in the likes of Harry Houdini and works like Tarzan, breaking the shackles of industrialization, urbanization, and modernity. Can you talk a bit about Houdini's connection with TR? Teddy Roosevelt is certainly the manliest man out there, and I think Houdini is a close second, and it's not a coincidence that they were part of the same era. This was really the beginning of the perfect man, this sort of idealized perfect man. There's actually a great book which is called Houdini, Tarzan, and the Perfect man by John Casson. And in this era, this is where you have the beginning of bodybuilding and people going to Coney Island and showing off their sculpted bodies. And this is largely why Houdini rose to such fame at this time, because he exhibited this uh, idealized strong man persona. Houdini was uh, the manliest man out there. A new biography of Houdini also suggests that he was a spy for the U.S. and British governments back before World War I. William Kalush and Larry Sloman are the authors of The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero. I'm joined now by William Kalush. Now, why do you call Harry Houdini a superhero? The whole concept of a superman was generated between 1899 and 1919. Houdini had created this mythology. He could escape from anything under any circumstances, and he successfully became part of the language by 1919. They were even writing articles about how this name Houdini was a synonym for escape and for magic. Obviously, we still use him as part of the language now. The sensation that Houdini stirred could not be understated. Houdini knew how to create an iconic visual image and how to manipulate the media of his time. He would come into a big city and hang himself upside down in a straitjacket from a skyscraper. But not just any building, usually the one that housed the major newspaper. The Houston Chronicle or the Boston Globe. He would not only make front page headlines, but he would also sell out his evening performances. In Houdini's diaries, you can see how he collected these newspaper clippings, honing his PR savvy, teller of Penn and Teller. He would arrange essentially what we would now call a co-promotion in which he would have the beer manufacturer manufacture a beer barrel big enough to contain Houdini and submerge him in there and nail him in the beer barrel, and he'd escape from that. But when he escaped from your boss's beer barrel, you were escaping from your everyday job. 
Years before the science of public relations was perfected, Houdini was doing it all. Branding, viral marketing, media strategy, product placement, even new media. Although in the early 1900s, new media was posters. Remember, while a common narrative is that Siegel and Schuster were naive boys when they sold Superman, they were in fact in their mid-twenties and veterans of the business. They had first tried to sell Superman in 1933, working and hustling within until they first broke out in 1935 with the ghost detective Dr. Colt, a hero whose supernatural abilities included the stage magician staples of hypnosis, illusions, mentalism, and the like. Remember that Siegel and Schuster devoured pop culture voraciously. That's how they found and befriended each other. As kids, they published a sci-fi fanzine together. At the height of Houdini's popularity, Siegel and Schuster were 12-year-old boys, absorbing everything they could at the time. It's hard to believe that they didn't know of Houdini at all, especially since he shared something so compelling in common with them. Rappaport says people at the time would have seen the subtext. Here was a Jewish immigrant, born Eric Weiss in Budapest, son of a rabbi. These feats were stunts. They were also imbued with great symbolism of escape from political, religious, and social oppression. Now, would people have actually gotten that? That seems a little highfalutin for a guy escaping from a milk can. You know, I think that we look on Houdini today, and that narrative is so clear that it could not have been missed in his day, too. As early as 1902, Houdini was hailed in the press as a Superman. Because of Siegel's legal conflicts with DC, he was always reluctant to credit his contemporary inspirations, as if it would lessen his own claim to Superman. So we may never know for a fact what influence, if any, Houdini had on the Superman. But we do know, for a fact, that magicians were in the zeitgeist. Not only because of their first foray into comics with Dr. Occult, but because, right there in Action Comics number 1, as a backup feature, are 12 pages dedicated to Zatara, Master Magician, by Fred Gardiner. Zatara was billed as a champion of law and order, and the world's greatest magician, complete with a top hat, short cape, tuxedo, and a faithful assistant. Zatara foils a train robbery with his fists, tricks, and yes, speaking spells backwards. Again, this is Action Comics number one. The Magician is right there, side by side with the birth of Superman and the comic book superhero. Superman drove the creation of Batman a year later as we covered in our Batman and Superman episode, and many of the trappings of magic are mirrored in the Batman mythos. The gaudy theatricality, the invocation of the superstitious, and hints of the occult apply across both. The high-class top hats and high-society evening wear of a magic act is sort of a peek into the aristocracy and privilege held by the heir to the Wayne family fortune. I won't run through all the ways that both embody duality and paradoxes, but consider the flexibility of their expression. Magic as an elaborate stage show or humble street magic. Batman as a billionaire playboy with glistening high-tech gadgetry and a clubhouse orbiting the earth. Or the bloody birth of the brutal bat in the gutters of Crime Alley, extracting vengeance with his fists and the crunch of bone. Batman has mastered throwing weapons, smoke bombs, vanishing acts. And while he's no Mr. Miracle, Batman is oft considered an expert escapologist. If only for the reputation spawned by Batman 66 serially strapped to a series of silly death traps to give the show suspense. Doth this foul deed spell fee for the caped crusaders? Whilst the dynamic duo escape to fight again? The villainous swine who threaten home and heart? Take heart, citizens. The answer to these and another pointed inquiries tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. 
Of course, Batman would always escape. These were mainstays of the mythos and something to distinguish the Dark Knight from the Man of Steel. Superman would break any bond through sheer strength sending shattered chain links flying. Bullets bounced right off his chest as if they were nothing. But for Batman, being bound or bullets demanded death defiance. Escape or die, catch a bullet or die. Handcuffs, straitjackets, cages, coffins, steel boxes, all irrelevant to Superman, are commonplace to Batman. It all fed into the fetishistic motifs of magic. The black costume, the masks, the colorful assistant, being bound, cuffed, trapped, chained, and the threats of mutilation, run through with swords, sawn in half, crushed, twisted, and so on. So often, the story of the stage magic act played itself out on the panels and pages of Batman. The perfection of self is a common theme in magic and Batman. As you know, Batman debuted in Detective Comics 27, but he wouldn't get an origin until issue 33, and after his vow to avenge the deaths of his parents warring on all criminals for the rest of his life, we have two panels dedicated to his development. Equal portions, mind and body, panel one, he becomes a master scientist, and in panel two, he quote, trains his body to physical perfection until he is able to perform amazing athletic feats. End quote. This obsession with training and perfection is required of great magicians. Often, the secret to the illusion isn't surprising, but rather it is the elegance of the execution which astonishes. Penn and Teller have a number of acts that illustrate this, where they explicitly explain or tell you how the trick is done. And if anything, that knowledge only enhances the performance. My favorite is their ball and cup routine using transparent cups. For more physical feats, Houdini was an accomplished boxer who hung out with the world heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey, and was said to have defeated the world bantamweight champ in an unsanctioned bout by the East River. His famous iron stomach was not a trick, but merely training. A strongman act that allowed anyone to punch him in the abdomen to no effect. More on this later, maybe. In a similar vein, here David Blaine talks about his decision to train to hold his breath. In 1987, I heard of a story about a boy that fell through ice and was trapped under a river. He was underneath not breathing for 45 minutes. When the rescue workers came, they resuscitated him and there was no brain damage. His core temperature had dropped to 77 degrees. As a magician, I think everything is possible. And I think if something is done by one person, it can be done by others. I started to think if the boy could survive, without breathing for that long, there must be a way that I could do it. Blaine would go on to hold his breath for 17 minutes and 4 seconds, besting the previous world record of 16 and a half minutes. As a conceit, Batman is often considered the peak of humanity, if not the best in everything, at least in the running for second best. If it is at all conceivable to do within human limitation, and even a bit beyond it, then it is within Batman's grasp to do. In principle, Batman is magic. What do I mean by that? Professor Lawrence Haas presents his working definition of magic. Magic is, I believe, the artful performance of impossible things that generates delight and wonder. First, magic is artful performance. Magic is a form of theater, and it's performed for people. Now, what magicians perform are impossible things. No way! Notice, impossible. There is no way that blank piece of paper could become a $20 bill. That can't happen. There is no way David Copperfield can lift off the stage and fly around. There is no way Penn and Teller can close their show. 
by firing handguns at each other and catching the bullets in their teeth. Batman basically fits that definition, one who theatrically performs his crime fighting in a seemingly impossible way, but by natural means, and that is without superpowers, metahuman abilities, etc. That balance is a pillar of Batman's appeal. On one hand, what he does is essentially impossible, but on the other, it must be possible by natural human means, if Batman is doing it, since he, by definition, has no powers and no other means. It's a circle to be sure so just be sure you draw it right. <laughs> we leave out the last part of the definition, which the professor adds in order to distinguish magic from a con or scam artist. But if we're honest, the professor's definition is too narrow. Yes, magic has been used for entertainment, but it's also been used for ill. The mad monk Rasputin, or the astrologer Quigley, used mysticism to manipulate those in power. The tricks used to feign faith healing or mediums, exploiting those grieving for lost ones. Escape artists can be just as skilled at breaking out of prisons as they are breaking into a heist. Houdini, himself a former fraud spiritualist, made it his mission to dismantle dishonest mediums and fake psychics. He testified before Congress for four days in favor of a ban against the practice of fortune-telling. He ended a friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who kept insisting Houdini had supernatural powers. And even the Bible features dual between followers of the one true God with supernatural miracles against false priests and prophets relying upon magic tricks in order to support their false gods and idols. So while I understand why his definition excludes these embarrassing examples, like any skill, talent, or art, it can be used for ill as well. And make no mistake, Batman always intended to use the art for his war. While so far the associations have been by analogy or merely metaphor, in Batman tradition, Batman is a magician trained by Giovanni Zatara in the ways of magic from the very beginning, Bruce never intended to delight the innocent from a stage, but to met out punishment to the wicked on the streets. Remember, concentration and control. Focus on them, and you can master any escape. Congratulations! You've beaten your old time by six seconds. You've got the makings of a great magician. I'm sorry you're going to be moving on. Same here. It was an honor to study with you, Zatara. But to what end? Three months ago, you appeared on my doorstep with no interest in performing, and yet dying to become an escape artist. <laughs> and for some reason, I wound up teaching you secrets I'd never shown another magician. You could have sent me away. No, there was something inside you I had no right to deny. Something deep and painful. A quarter century after Zatara appeared in Action Comics number one, his better-known daughter, Zatanna, would make her first appearance in Hawkman number four and eventually become a mainstay of the DC mythos generally and the Batman mythos specifically. And across the Nolan trilogy, we have the overlap between magical and martial technique. Theatricality and deception are powerful agents. You must become more than just a man in the mind of your opponent. And as if we needed any more direct or explicit proof, while Superman's creators have been more coy, Bob Kane has made it explicit, admitting that he has always been a big Houdini fan at a comic convention in California. Ironically, the pinnacle example of a single human achieving the impossible to Bob Kane, Houdini proves that Batman is possible. <laughs> Returning to the definition of magic, I just want to briefly emphasize the aspect of performance. Going back to Batman's origins, Bruce ruminates, Criminals are a superstitious, cowardly lot, so my disguise must be able to strike terror into their hearts. I shall become a bat. 
it's important to understand that Batman is in service to a performance, more so than the optimization of results. If you find yourself asking why Batman isn't increasing his philanthropic contributions and political impact to stem the tide of crime, or if you wonder why anyone should be punched at all if Batman could be armed with tranquilizer guns and the like, you've lost the point about the performance. It's like stopping a magician mid-act, interrupting his pattern performance to simply demand that he tell you your card. It's not only about the result. It's not reading the last chapter of a book or skipping to the end of a movie. Speaking of the movies, if magic is the performance of impossible things, consider the magic of the movies. The ties between movies and magic are long-standing and many. George Millais, Orson Welles, J.J. Abrams, and the cinematographer of BVS, Larry Fong, all practice magic. Because those art forms are so closely aligned. J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson, who has the next Star Wars movie coming out, the great director of photography, Larry Fong, is a magician. Filmmaking really rose out of illusion. And one of the most central figures there was George Méliès, who was a magician and the father of special effects and cinema. And he actually took over the Théâtre Robert Houdin. Robert Houdin was the great French magician who is considered the father of modern magic. Now, Robert Houdin was the gentleman who made magic safe as an evening performance. Think of magic before as something that was just kind of done on the streets as sort of a juggling act, right? Well, Robert Houdin, he had his audiences put on evening clothes. You put on your white tie and tails, you come to his theater and you view an evening of astonishment and illusion. And George Méliès took over that theater. The world was primed for artists to prove that this medium was more than just a passing fad. And along came a storyteller who would make his own magic, take us to the moon, and jumpstart the first special effects revolution. He changed what filmmakers and audiences believed was possible, both on screen and off. It was time for Georges Méliès. He was born in Paris in 1861 and first achieved fame as a stage magician. If you're familiar with Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, it'll come as no surprise that stage magicians were huge celebrities at the turn of the century. Stage magicians entertained large crowds with illusions and magic tricks and decked out their acts with a elaborate sets, costumes, and characters, and most importantly for us, wove their larger acts around stories. By all accounts, George Méliès was skilled and successful. He owned and operated his own theater, the Théâtre Robert Houdon, where he acted as writer, producer, and director, and designed the sets and costumes himself. Méliès was developing magic tricks, from sophisticated sight gags to theatrical special effects. Méliès had found a way to perform actual magic with editing, to fool an audience and pull off illusions he'd never been able to do on stage. He began making trick films with a vengeance, using the power of editing and special effects to do the impossible on screen, like levitating heads, making people disappear, or changing an object's size or shape. The laws of physics were no match for Méliès in his camera and editing tricks. He could manipulate time, he could manipulate space, and he could harness the fact that all film presents an illusion to push his own illusions even further. Before long, Méliès began incorporating elements of his theatrical shows into his films, the elaborate costumes, the lavish sets, the exaggerated props, and the stories. Put yourself in the shoes of a filmgoer in 1901 Paris, having seen nothing but slice-of-life actualités and vaudeville performers on screen. The relative sophistication, ambitious vision, and powerful special effects of Méliès' films would be downright thrilling. In 1902, Méliès released his masterpiece, A Trip to the Moon, loosely based on a Jules Verne novel. This 14-minute film follows a group of scientists who travel to the moon, sleep under the stars, battle some aliens, and escape back to Earth triumphant. Even if you haven't seen the whole thing, you probably know the iconic image of the man in the moon with a space capsule stuck in his eye. This film incorporates many of Méliès' innovations, his trick photography, his fantastical settings, and his ambitious storytelling, all in the service of a large-scale, relatively complex narrative fiction film. It was a massive 
massive international success. But it wasn't just a financial hit. It also had a profound effect on other filmmakers of the time, and expanded what people thought was possible narratively and aesthetically. Not only could films take us into space and let us battle with aliens, but they could also sustain our attention for almost 15 minutes and tell stories that unfolded over multiple scenes. A Trip to the Moon still gets referenced everywhere, from Martin Scorsese's Hugo, which features a loving portrait of George Melies, to the Smashing Pumpkins' 1996 music video for Tonight Tonight. Larry Fong observed that movies represent a sort of supreme, multi-layered illusion that we willfully enter into. The people aren't who they say they are, and the words are not their own. The actions and locations are all generated and scripted. And then the expression of the thing itself isn't even actual. This isn't a stage play or live theater. There aren't actual people up there, but instead a projection of light onto a screen. And that still totally takes us into the lives and the stories of the film. They make us feel real emotions, real wonder, and in some cases, really affect our lives. The filmmakers of BVS specifically all dabble in that broad range of magic. The artful performance of the impossible. For example, the cerebral scribe Chris Terrio's Oscar-winning Argo screenplay is in a sense the story of a giant magic trick. As mentioned, Larry Fong practices magic, and it is a passionate interest for him. He was the cinematographer for Now You See Me, which also starred Jesse Eisenberg, and the cinematographer on Super 8, in part because he shared an interest in magic and filmmaking with Abrams when they were kids. Among the bonus features on Super 8 is a short featurette of Fong entertaining the cast and crew with his magic. Abrams has said that this is his favorite thing on the disc, and Fong has said he can't bear to watch it. He prefers his place behind the camera. But as magic is mostly a visual medium, I'll compromise and play you just a few excerpts. This is Larry Fong. He's the director of cinematography. He's a magician. <laughs> Larry Fong is definitely like the best magic trick person in the world. He can twist so many things that it's not even funny. Me explaining it doesn't even make sense, but you know, it just, it was mind blowing. And you opened the book where you wanted to open it. Yeah. And you chose a word randomly. This totally. Okay. All mixed. Picture the word here. Thrashing. <laughs> the best one, I must say, was the one with the soda cans. I carried two cans to different parts of a street. He went over and he shook one up. He said, I'm going to transport the fizz in this one to the soda can in over there. That one's gonna explode. That one is the Crap! Oh my gosh! Oh my. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Courtney, what was your card? The Five of Diamonds. The Five of Diamonds. <laughs> you can clearly hear the awe, joy, and delight Larry brings them with his magic. And my apologies to Larry, but I absolutely recommend owning Super 8 so you can check this featurette out. Executive producer Christopher Nolan, of course, directed The Prestige, a film about the rivalry between two Victorian magicians. <laughs> and completely tongue-in-cheek, did you know that Zack Snyder has been dubbed The Wizard? Yeah, we're very excited about the movie. I think it's real fun, and it's been an, an amazing experience getting to work with my two favorite comic book characters anyways. I, 
want to talk to you about your nickname. Because I don't know if you know this, but your nickname is The Wizard Online. If you oh, go on Gina. IMDb. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Uh, I had not heard that. Although, uh -huh. I, you know what? Now that I think about it, my wife, who is my producer, had mentioned that, hey, you know they're calling you calling you this? And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Well, okay you make magic happen crazy. on the screen. <laughs> if you didn't already know that, well, as that clip showed, that nickname was news to Zach as well. <laughs> Okay, so that one was a reach, but let's get into BVS itself. Sure, in the tradition of the mythos, Batman is a magician. And in the ambiguity of his unseen career in BVS, he may be one as well. But if you really review the film for impossibly performed feats, it becomes clear that this conception of the Batman includes that tradition in his history. I need to reserve some time for the main event, so while my scene-by-scene -scene notes are exhaustive, we're going to go with the abridged list rather than the full analysis or argument. It's okay if you don't buy every piece of evidence, or if something seems like a stretch. That's the beauty of ambiguity and interpretation. And if magic is illusion and illusion deception and deception a lie, we can go right to the beginning with the beautiful lie. Already in the themes, the narration, the voice of the mind of the character himself is an affinity and a trap action towards an appealing alternative to the truth, the consensual trick, the willful denial of reality, and a magic mode of thinking. And over the course of the story, we find that it goes back even before the first frame of the film. Master Wayne, since the age of seven, you have been to the art of deception as Mozart to the harpsichord. We learn from Bruce's surrogate parent that even before the deaths of Martha and Thomas, Bruce was a prodigy, a genius, a virtuoso comparable to Mozart in deceit and deception. Younger than seven, many children still struggle to separate reality from fantasy, and they don't appreciate the significance of lying. By age seven, however, some children can see how their lies construct multi-layered realities which require secondary and tertiary lies to remain consistent and believable. However, there still isn't necessarily that same level of moral understanding or guilt associated with lying. If Bruce was exceptional, it would mean not only could he weave elaborate fictions without contradiction, he also understood the moral implications of his actions and could suppress his guilt for the sake of the convincing lie. Good lying requires two key ingredients. The first key ingredient is theory of mind or the mind reading ability. Mind reading is ability to know that different people have a different knowledge about the situation and the ability to differentiate between what I know and what you know. Mind reading is important for lying because the basis of lying is that I know you don't know what I know. Therefore, I can lie to you. The second key ingredient for good lying is self-control. It is ability to control your speech, your facial expression, and your body language so that you can tell a convincing and we found that those young children who have more advanced mind reading and self-control abilities tell lies earlier and are more sophisticated liars. As it turns out, these two abilities are also essential for all of us to function well in our society. In fact, deficits in mind reading and self-control abilities are associated with serious developmental problems such as ADHD and autism. It is around this age that many magicians get their start. Do magicians look down on these little plastic sets that people get when they're eight years old? Or is that really the key to their profession? I think every magician started out that way. Every magician that I've known, every magician I've had the chance to speak to, begins maybe not at five, but certainly at seven, when they walked into a magic store and bought a magic trick and learned to do it when they got that first magic set. And that ability, inclination, and mode was only ingrained deeper by the deaths of his parents. 
the magical thinking of orphan boys. If we pull back to the origin of Batman in Detective Comics 33, consider the nature of the vow he makes. And I swear by the spirits of my parents to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. The lie that he has to say to himself in order to start down a road where we get this Batman in such a realistic world. In a world like our own, intending to end up the Batman is only sustainable with self-deception and magical thinking. <laughs> and this is the abridged version. We haven't even started the film yet, so I've got to go faster. Let's fast attack some of these. From Batman's first scene, Santos is like a messed up magician's assistant who failed to escape and got mutilated. Batman relies on misdirection. He moves and disappears impossibly, performing the impossible by natural mortal means. Magic. When Bruce enters the Batcave, it's like being taken backstage to see the man behind the curtain. I'm an ingenieur. I design illusions and construct the apparatus necessary for performing them. We even get some insight into Batman's tricks, how he can survive a hail of shotgun fire, take bullets to the back of the head, or speak in an unnatural voice, all contributing to his performance, the air of invincibility, and suggesting something supernatural to the superstitious. Magic. We also get a glimpse of a map showing that Batman has marked nearly 30 incidents with Superman's shield. Considering how much we're able to draw from just one or two incidents, imagine what the Batman might begin to deduce or determine from that many data points. In the underground fight, we get misdirection and practice patter, and a slight bit of slight. No one sees Bruce give his advice or take Kanaizev's data, and in a bit of meta magic, we're blind to an appearance by our director. Magic. We get more misdirection and deception in Bruce's attempted data heist. And then at the museum, Bruce attempts a little bit of mentalism trying to challenge what he thinks she's thinking, and to impress her with secret knowledge, as if omniscient, a common magician's technique, only to have the tables turned on him. In the nightmare, Batman has a trick played on him, the betrayer bothering with green bulbs in the box. But there's also the matter of secreting Superman's soldiers among them, throwing off their disguises like the finale to a magic act, not to mention Batman being shackled, as is common in many magical acts. The research park aftermath has vanishing magic, calling cards, and the impossible one-man infiltration. Magic. We get a preparation montage showing Batman loading up his gear, gadgets, and tricks. And we never got into it, but much of magic is reliant on gadgetry, inventions, and engineering. The preparation also shows the training of the body so salient to so many magicians. And we have the framing of the fight as utterly impossible. Alfred says, you know you can't win this. It's suicide. And imagine how many times and ways those words have inspired magicians. The impossibility, the danger. It doesn't forestall the magically minded. It's a siren's call. We, like Alfred, like Bruce, know that the rational, logical calculation is that it's impossible for Batman to beat Superman. And yet that impossible feat is precisely what Bruce intends to perform. It's why using logic to object to the feat is like trying to use logic to object to a magic trick. Consider the following reaction, as magician Michael Carbonaro produces both a basketball and a bowling ball from the same small box while in the guise of a cashier. Look at this. It was supposed to be a bowling ball, custom bowling ball. So you're back. Oh, wait. Oh, good, good, good. Wait, how did... Oh, I forgot. They, they ship the bowling balls with the basketballs so that it's lighter, the air. Yeah. Wait, wait, no. Okay, I don't get this. All right, so that was in there and yeah. this was in there with it? Yes. That's... Oh. 
uh, just so that it's easier for no, them. No, how did this close? That's how they ship them that way. Wait, no, no, how did it close? It doesn't fit. Like, okay, put that in there. How did that happen? They always come like that. Right, but how could those two things possibly fit in this box together right now? We sell them both. They, it's only supposed to be this one item. So how did this basketball fit with it? Just so that it won't be heavy. How? How? Physically, how? Look it, it doesn't I don't fit. It. I really don't understand what you mean. <laughs> Outside the context of a magic trick, she isn't wrong. The box lacks the volume to contain both balls. But hopefully you recognize it's pointless to raise the size of the box once she knows it's a magic trick. In that context, trying to challenge the plausibility of the trick by that argument is silly because it's a trick. And you need to understand that the Batman-Superman fight was always intended as a trick. Why else show us Batman planting the spear in advance of Superman's arrival? If all you needed was the delivery of the spear to the right place and time that isn't a difficult issue to write around or plan for. It can come to Batman after the fact, by UAV, unmanned drone, orbital deployment, or whatever. But instead, in a March 2016 interview with Entertainment Weekly, director Zack Snyder described Batman as a chess player and says about the placement of the spear, quote, he paces it off. Then, when he throws Superman, the spear is right there. So you're like, wait a minute, did he plan every bit? Did he know every move? End quote. Now hold on, before you start to sound like the woman from the Carbonaro clip, we'll come back to this. In the Martha rescue, again, we have misdirection as Batman emerges from the floor rather than the door. And as much as I want to run through the entire list, I think I can let the rest of these go with one exception. Batman's final cape and cowl scene in the film is opposite Lex Luthor in Belrev prison. Aside from the dialogue, in terms of logistics, what is this scene but another demonstration of magic? The lights flicker, the warden and the guard disappear, and they are replaced by Batman in a quick change effect. To make his exit, Batman disappears down a 50-foot empty corridor in the split-second Lex flinches. That's a pair of impressive illusions worthy of any magician. It's often said that a character's first and last scenes carry the most significance and communicate to the audience both the first impression and the final takeaway the filmmakers wish to impress upon them. Crawling along the ceiling, seemingly untouched by shot gun fire from a few feet away before vanishing and appearing in a high security prison replacing its highest official with command over the lights and locks all in the blink of an eye then vanishing into thin air just as quickly the filmmakers want you to understand batman is completely competent in these abilities being a magician is crucial to this Batman's tool set and identity. Well, while we're talking about a scene with Lex, we're not going to get into all the ways that Lex is a magician too. But if I can just pick out one of my points, consider all the props Lex always seems to have in advance of an illustration. He just walked off a basketball court, but he has ready a little blue ball to make his little blue planet point. He keeps himself entertained playing solitaire with a deck of cards, a magician's staple, just as he pitches Keefe on no longer keeping his protest solitary. On the helipad, he not only produces a fan of photos with a flourish that makes Superman step back in surprise, but also a minute-minder kitchen timer from the 50s, something so absurd to show except that this timer is a limit on Martha's life. And when Lex first turns the dial, it's an arbitrary detail, but when Lex reveals the trick, he's all but explicit. Mother of God, would you look at the time, he says as he delights in displaying the timer. A kitchen timer recalls mom's home-cooked meals, maternal love, by a mom also from the 50s. But I think it's more than that. I think that's Martha's kitchen timer. It would certainly go with the decor of her home. They use a vintage Mr. Coffee branded coffee maker. 
Martha still makes and takes calls with a corded telephone. An old-school kitchen timer would fit right in. If that's Martha's timer, it would have been the one that Clark grew up with and watched impatiently as he waited for pies to bake. Or maybe what measured timeouts when she'd discipline him out of love. It would be a device that Clark was subconsciously inclined to obey based on his childhood. Lex brings up the derelict Wayne Manor against Batman. I could completely see him requiring his henchmen to deliver this device along with the Polaroids of Martha. And it would be just another trick within the genius of this scene. Lex successfully pulls off the omniscience trick that Bruce didn't quite land with Diana. He shows that he knows Superman's secret and that he's pulled the strings on everything, including Batman. And yet, as we later learn, even all this was a misdirect just to give him time to finish cooking Doom. Doomsday. Lex is every bit the mythological manipulative mastermind. But back to Batman and the main event. There are several ways to break this down, but I think that David Kwong's book, Spellbound, Seven Principles of Illusion, gives us a framework to analyze Batman's plan. David Kwong is a magician and a graduate of Harvard where he studied the history of magic. He writes crossword puzzles for the New York Times, and he was the head magic consultant on Now You See Me. His credits include Burt Wonderstone, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, The Magnificent Seven, and Blindspot. Hi, I'm David Kwong, and I'm a magician. And I've taken magic, and I've broken it down into the seven principles of illusion, and I'm going to show you how you can use them in your everyday life. His book is not meant to expose the inner workings of magic, but instead the principles that every good magician employs, and which you can too. As they appear in the book, the principles are 1. Mind the gap. 2. Load up. 3. Write the script. 4. Control the frame. 5. Design free choice. 6. The familiar. And 7. Conjure and out. Don't worry, we'll explain as we go, starting with Mind the Gap. In short, this is an inversion of seeing is believing, when in fact there is a gap between what we see and what we believe. Well, first you need to understand that your brain is a liar. There's so much information in the world, your brain cannot handle it all. So in order to function, it takes shortcuts. It makes assumptions. Neuroscientists call this a modal completion. Between what you see and what you believe is a gap, which is how we get our first principle, mind the gap. Magicians like to play around in this gap. Applied to Batman, he has to first know whether Superman is susceptible to the same kind of illusions humans are in order to develop an act or plan around that gap. We, the audience, know for a fact that Superman does suffer from human cognition, although the beautiful truth is that he enjoys human cognition. But I'm sure it definitely didn't feel that way when he tells Lois, I didn't see it, Lois. Standing right there and I didn't see it. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking. That's about as explicit proof as it gets, so we know Superman can fall for a magic trick. But how does Batman deduce the same thing? Earlier, we mentioned Batman marking 30 incidents in the Gotham metropolis metro area alone, not to mention two years of other heroics elsewhere. But even from what we explicitly see in the film, Batman can come to the same conclusion. The first time Bruce enters the Batcave in the film, Alfred calls up Superman footage with only a few keystrokes, showing that this is what Bruce has been studying. And we have security footage of Superman fighting Zod. In that fight, Superman gets surprised by Zod several times, 
showing that he isn't omniscient and that there is a gap between what his powers might be capable of doing and how Superman actually operates. Moreover, Bruce can see that Superman does not move or fight or react at super speed in that fight. So the Zod fight, the Capitol bombing, and their first encounter all provide enough data for Batman to formulate a magic trick that would work on Superman. And we have reason to suspect that Batman has additional research and insight into the Man of Steel besides those on-screen incidents. For example, during the course of the fight itself, Batman's conclusion that Superman can be blindsided or surprised is proved by his traps, his lead smokescreen, and the payload of his grenade launcher. So speaking of those preparations, the second principle is to load up. Loading up is a term that I transformed into a principle. We, as magicians, will often say, I was so loaded up when I walked into that bar, or when I arrived at the party, I was loaded up. And what that refers to are the hidden strings that we might have running up and down our sleeves, our pockets stuffed with various devices. What can I really say here? These different things that we have to make ourselves appear superhuman. Doing all the heavy lifting ahead of time, and then appearing magical in the moment. One of the reasons that this Batman is so satisfying and faithful to the fans is because it didn't take Batman's prep time for granted, even if it would be so easy to do so. After all, the utility belt basically embodies that assumption. Instead, we get to see the training, the research, the plotting, and the prep. Of course, it's important to note that we weren't shown everything so that some of it is as much a surprise to us, the audience, as it is to Superman. We aren't expecting sonic emitters and sentry guns. We don't see Batman as assemble the armor. Now consider for a moment how much preparation is involved in just the logistics of the location. Batman had to bring, power, install, and test the spotlight, the guns, the traps, and the triggers. This is not trivial. We're talking literally tons of hardware, tons that had to be moved and put into place for this moment. Incidentally, that explains how Lex could synchronize the timing of his kidnappings with Batman's moves, because by necessity, these would be observable moves. The emitters erupt from asphalt. Their hiding place had to be dug up, wired for power and sensors, and then paved over to hide them, perhaps with blacktop laden with lead. Several sentry guns had to be trucked in and set to detect and attack only Superman. Batman would have to take measures to ensure that the area was truly abandoned for their fight. Maybe Wayne's security had to do sweeps for squatters in advance. And there's that spotlight. And this isn't even taking into account any unused or unseen preparations or contingencies. Note everything I've discussed so far is simply taking what we've seen at face value. We literally don't know what else might have been in store if Superman had done something differently or set off other potential preparations. We can't prove whether they're there or not, but we can point to the utility belt in principle as an example of contingencies extending beyond what we see in any one instance. Just because we see bombs or batarangs produced from the belt, it doesn't mean that there aren't lockpicks or handcuffs. If Batman really is the pinnacle of planning? Is it really so ridiculous to propose that he might have planned for more that we didn't see? The sheer amount of heavy lifting involved in just what we see makes me roll my eyes when critics scoff at the logistics of delivering an email to Diana. <laughs> I think the man can figure it out. And please note that all of this doesn't even take the trick 
into account. By the time you're bringing trucks full of stage equipment, and I mean that quite literally, lights, sound, power, and fireworks, if you're a skilled magician intent on taking on an alien that everyone else calls a god, a fight and feat that your closest confidant calls suicide, and you want to do the impossible, and you're telling me you wouldn't use the one talent you have that is defined as allowing mere mortals to perform the impossible? Ah, that's like putting Batman in a death trap and then denying his skills as an escape artist. Once you remember that Batman's a magician, entering the main event intending to pull off a magic trick, the script almost writes itself, which is our third principle, write the script. In the book, this principle is about shaping the narrative to suit the magic or your success. Kwong points out, however, that the majority of magicians fail to achieve this. Why is it so important to have a story when you're performing a trick? The sad reality is that most magicians do not have story with their magic tricks. That's why there are so many birthday party magicians that don't go anywhere. The really great magicians out there imbue narrative and dramatic arc into their stories. I think David Copperfield did this the best. Copperfield was a master of taking narrative and putting it right in the hands of the audience and getting them to feel like they were a part of the show. And unfortunately, most magicians don't take advantage of this. They just kind of do the trick. The audience might find it cool for a moment, but it doesn't stay with them, right? I did a lot of research talking to social scientists and neurobiologists about the effects of story. And if you look at commercials and advertising, when these things tap into our mirror neurons, the parts of our brain that respond to what's going on on screen, we will liken what we're seeing to our own emotional experiences and the message will be more effective because when you see your action hero on screen jumping from a train, your palms are sweating in the audience, right? Because you are experiencing what he's experiencing. Your mirror neurons are firing. So when you can engage people in an emotional level, people will be more receptive to your product. Initially, Batman's trick really doesn't have much of an arc for Superman, and that comes from Batman employing magic more like a martial art than a means of engagement. But there is a story, and we'll talk about that a little later. The more interesting application of this principle is in how Batman has mastered the art of shaping the narrative to himself, telling himself a certain story over and over to pump himself up for this fight. We can get a glimpse into how he wrote the script leading up to this fight and during it. When Alfred says, but he is not our enemy. Bruce doesn't deny it, but he crafts the narrative that Superman is corruptible. Even if he's a good guy today, they have to destroy him if there's a 1% chance he doesn't stay that way. In his first face-to-face -face encounter, he tells Superman he will bleed. Batman is convincing himself that Superman isn't invincible. And in the ruins of Wayne Manor, Alfred again confronts Bruce. You know you can't win this, it's suicide. And again, Bruce doesn't deny it. He's lived a longer life than his father, and he's convinced himself that this is worth what's left of it. He says, this may be the only thing I do that matters. This is about the future of the world. This is my legacy. Again, he writes the script that he needs. He doesn't talk about what really brought the Wayne's wealth, but Cherry picks a point in time that frames him as a hunter, a killer, and dehumanizes Superman as mere prey. Note, Batman 
needs this narrative to do what he's going to do, to kill a being that isn't their enemy, that he knows is considered a hero and loved by others. We'll elaborate on this in our Art of War episode, which dives deeper into Batman not knowing Superman was Clark Kent, despite discovering intimate details like the inability to see through lead. Remember that Jeanette doesn't know about that limitation. And that has to do with Batman needing not to look, so that his story supports what he wants it to. How can he still be effective? Well, Batman's theory of mind for Superman only needs to relate to combat, not his personhood. And it's the same for other conflicts, be it soldiers, boxers, or politicians. A magician only need know how the audience's attention works generally. They don't need to know each and every audience member as a person to work their magic. And likewise, Batman's plan for the final fight. To keep it in a magic-related context, The Prestige is an excellent illustration of how rivalry and revenge can consume even clever magicians with sympathetic stories. Both sides of the rivalry are capable of love and lovable, as proven by Scarlett Johansson's character who literally does just that. But neither man chooses to see the merit in the other, instead choosing obsession. We avoid, discard, or downplay information that doesn't align with our intention or chosen impressions. But that's another episode, as is the analysis of Superman's dialogue. Believe me, I badly want to get into it, but this isn't the episode for that. I will say that, in short, that, well, here I am is essentially a challenge to that last exchange he had with Superman, and I understand is essentially saying, I'm not going to listen. I have all the information I'm going to accept. And again, we'll cover Superman's side of this more in depth another time. From Batman, we get more dehumanizing lines. Breathe it in. That's fear. You're not brave. Men are brave. We obviously know Clark experiences fear, and logically, if Superman has human cognition, Batman would know that too. But he's chosen to tell himself and believe a narrative where Superman thinks he's a god, thinks he has a preordained purpose, and has never known fear. That is how he has to see Superman to do the deed. He's willfully keeping his attention on the most inhuman aspects of the Superman as he sees it. And that goes into the fourth principle, control the frame. This principle is about misdirection. Controlling the frame is a phrase that we magicians use to describe misdirection and our abilities to command people's attention. If you think about a performance, you are watching a certain area of the stage. If it's a close-up magic performance, you're watching the hands as they deal cards on the table. This is the frame. This is the proscenium of the stage through which you are viewing the trick. And there's absolutely a reason why filmmaking making came out of illusion at the turn of the last century. So if a key to the trick is getting Superman to the spear or delivering the kryptonite grenades, we can see that Batman does this in part. He doesn't have the spear on him or in view nearby. He doesn't open with the grenades. In the first place, he creates a frame where the world's only points of interest are the spotlight on the roof and him standing in the street. A quick aside about the spotlight, it is the central example of Batman as a public symbol, and it invades Superman's domain as a public symbol. Love affair with man in the sky. No man in the sky saved me, which is part of the reason why it so upsets Superman subconsciously, and why he says, next time they shine your light in the sky, they're both struggling to define the superhero in a world without even knowing it. Okay, that aside over, let's go back to controlling the frame. Note that controlling the frame doesn't preclude the possibility or will of the other to look elsewhere, right? It's not like the magician 
physically straps their heads in place, or that the audience are incapable of moving their eyeballs. Rather, the magician simply shifts the probabilities in favor of a particular frame. By the same token, yes, Superman could, in theory, scan every building in the area with X-ray vision, looking for who knows what. But because Batman has controlled the frame, that kind of survey is extremely unlikely. Batman has presented himself as a non-threat, and Superman has no idea what kryptonite is. Even if Superman spots Batman's grenade launcher, he isn't going to be worried about its payload when he survived a head-on collision with a missile capable of cratering a compound, followed by the armed drone that fired it. Batman may as well have been carrying a cork pop gun, as far as Superman is concerned. So that's street level. On the rooftop, Batman doesn't let loose the grenade until Superman is nearly blindsided. What he's doing is part of another principle, our fifth so far, employing the familiar. Basically, this means taking advantage of habits, patterns, and audience expectations. This is sort of the other side of the coin to minding the gap and then looking for ways to exploit it. Or you could consider it part of the research side of loading up. Related to the grenade, it's a small example, but obviously Superman expects Batman to be where he was before the smokescreen went off, and that's why he's slightly surprised when Batman is off to the side. In a broader sense, we can see how Batman's plan exploits many of Superman's observable habits, patterns, and expectations. For example, from their prior encounter, Batman has seen that Superman engages in face-to-face -face confrontation in a hands-on sort of way. Basically, if you imagine all the dozens of alternative ways Superman could have started the Batman-Superman fight, you'd have to consider how he did none of those in his first encounter with Batman. He didn't speed blitz the Batmobile, he didn't fry it from the sky with heat vision, he didn't haul it into the air and hold it there, or place it precariously in an area that he couldn't get away, he didn't throw it into space, he didn't emerge underground from underneath, he didn't drop a train on it, he didn't silently take it to a prison courtyard without a word, and so on and so forth. No, as past his prologue, what he did was basically what he would do and did do now. Land, come close, and talk. And that's consistent with other notable appearances, such as fighting Zod or appearing before Congress. In theory, Superman could have tried heat vision before Zod said a single word. In theory, Superman could have showed up at Senator Finch's home in private, rather than answer her public call. But in practice, Superman is a creature of habit. We all are. We've built up patterns, assumptions, and ways of thinking that make us predictable, which means, ironically, kids who lack that experience, knowledge, and understanding are often the ones who unintentionally break the trick. Children, Thank you for children sometimes will bust the trick easier than adults. Yeah, because they're not as misdirected the same way. They don't mm -hmm. have the same assumptions. They're more open. Yeah, they're like, you have two cards. <laughs> And if and when your audience breaks the trick, you can still pull it off if you conjure it out. The sixth and penultimate principle. Magicians have no room for error. So we always have outs built into our tricks. If something goes wrong, we are able to conjure up a different ending to the trick that you are not even aware of. So the beauty of a magician's out is it's not just a backup plan, but it's the backup plan that still puts you ahead of the audience and still makes you appear amazing and superhuman. So for all of my tricks, there's always an out, if not two or three of them. 
Conjuring it out is simply anticipating issues and having backup plans or alternatives. We could spend all day working through the what-ifs on a granular move-for-move level, and the evidence exists that Batman had some of this planned or in play. For example, the fact that he had three kryptonite grenades but only had to use two. But it's more interesting to look at Batman's intentions more broadly. Basically, he didn't have an out because this was a suicide mission. He was going to kill Superman or die trying. He had no plans to lose but live to fight another day. That wasn't how he framed this story in his own mind. So he doesn't have a contingency plan in place when it comes to be that he doesn't want Superman dead. It's an inconceivable outcome to Batman. Nearly as inconceivable as Batman being able to block Superman's punch may have seemed to Superman. On to our seventh and final principle, design free choice. In the context of the book, Kwong points out that the illusion of choice is key to an engaging performance of magic because we mentally guard our concept of free will and agency instinctually. At a base level, we refuse to believe that our decisions can be subverted, so the greater freedom a trick puts into the audience's hands, the more it astonishes. Additionally, the less apparent agency a magician has over the trick, the more it astonishes. In the following two card effects, David Blaine does not touch the deck after the card is named. First, on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Name any card in the deck. Name any card out loud. Say it out loud. Nine of diamonds. Nine of diamonds? Yeah. First or second? It's up to you. Second. Nine of diamonds, second. I shuffled, you saw me. I I placed one card in a position. I put the nine of diamonds in the second position in the deck. Jimmy, open the box. Turn it over. Go ahead. Gosh. Go ahead. Turn it over. (laughs) Turn it over. Yeah, yeah, turn it and open it up. Okay. And pull out the whole deck. Mm -hmm. And you said second, right? That's correct. So that's first. Show me the second card. (laughs) (laughs) You're just amazing. You were the greatest, man. Oh my gosh. Next, an ACAN trick any card at any number, performed on Jennifer Lawrence over live mobile video. The deck is with Jennifer and in principle under her control. Do you know how to shuffle cards? Like like a riffle shuffle? <laughs> now, Jen, name any card at random. Name any card in the deck. Jack of clubs. Name any number between 1 and 52. 23. You said jack of clubs and then 23, right? Yeah. Count 23 cards. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Can you show me the card that you count? Turn, turn over the top card, the one that you count. Let me see it. Yeah! You're a witch! You're a witch! Okay, I'm going to count again. 1, 2, 3, but Jen, you did that. I didn't do it, so I'm not the witch. You no. thought of the card and the number. No. no. What? One day, like before you die, are you just gonna write a book and just tell us everything you can't you can't die? <laughs> information that we don't know. <laughs> In the same TV special, Blaine performed a digital version of a book test combined with mentalism on Margot Robbie, but that was somewhat harder to translate to audio. 
The idea that Blaine couldn't touch the cards or couldn't command their choices make the effect. What if I had thought of a different card or a different number? What if I had picked a different page or word? The illusion is that the choice was free or that the choice was relevant. As an example of the latter case, a basic technique is equivocation or the magician's choice. Options are presented to a volunteer who makes, in their own mind, a free choice between the options. But only on careful review would one see that the volunteer had no context for the choice that they were making, and that irrespective of their choice, the magician would apply the context required by the trick. As a trite example, a magician might say, look, this is a fair coin, heads to you, tails to me, I'm going to let you flip it and call it in the air. And already the volunteer feels that they have agency. They can examine the coin. The coin is in their hands and the call is theirs. And they call heads and it comes up heads. And then the magician says, heads, you called it. Heads is you. You're going to blindfold me. (laughs) Not realizing that that would be the result regardless of the coin flip. A deft magician will write the script so that you forget the context came after the choice. A temporal slight. And this is an amateur example of a force, which is a magician's term for any method of controlling a choice made by a volunteer during a trick. A mathematical or algorithmic force gives the volunteer choices that are irrelevant but obscured because we're bad at intuiting math or complex procedures. The funny thing is that a mathematical force relies on a bad intuition for math, but it risks not working if the audience is bad at calculating math. A card force can be accomplished with sleight of hand, an entire elegant art unto itself with lifts, slips, passing and palming, jogs, flourishes, and fake cuts and shuffles. In the opening of Now You See Me, a riffle selection force is performed by Jesse Eisenberg's character, Atlas. He lets the cards flash by like a flipbook and tells the audience to think of the card they saw. I'm going to flip through this deck and I want you to see one card and not this one. That's too obvious. Pay close attention. That was too fast. I'll do it again. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, did you see one? Yes. Do you have one in mind? Yes. The trick works even on the theater-going audience, because the Seven of Diamonds appears a split second longer and is, in essence, the only card that they can perceive. Of course, the force only works if the volunteer saw the Seven of Diamonds and answers honestly. The volunteer could blink, or might see another card, or might lie. And that's part of where the experience and artistry comes into magic. Learning to layer your act with outs, learning to gauge the compliance of your volunteer, and so on. In this example, the do the riffle selection twice to ensure that the card is seen, and the rest is down to the magician. The best magicians, by way of experience, are experts of human behavior and cognition. Psychologists and neurologists have been looking into how magicians manipulate our perceptions. Professor Martinez Conde joins us. As cognitive neuroscientists, we realized that we had a very good and previously untapped resource, which was the magicians. We find that a number of the principles that we take advantage of in the laboratory and visual illusions that we use to understand what the brain is doing, in many occasions, these have not been discovered by scientists, but have been discovered by artists. Magicians are these artists of awareness and cognition. These are expert manipulators of attentional levels. 
We've studied human cognition and decision-making a lot on this show. We've talked about priming, cognitive biases, instincts, altruism, and ethical dilemmas. And by now, you should know that we're not all emotionalist, strictly logical, Spock-like decision-makers, and that our minds make all sorts of fascinating shortcuts. At this intersection of neuroscience, psychology, and magic, I just have to point out one set of studies which are wonderful at illustrating this intersection and two larger points about our perception and psychology. These studies used magic in the experiments, showing that we're blind to change and choice, and that we rationalize our choices in the moment and after the fact. Peter Johansson and Lars Hall have devised an experiment which calls into question many of our assumptions about how we make most of our everyday decisions. We're interested to see what kind of detail the representations behind people's decisions and what kind of insight they have about those decisions. This is all quite boring until you look at the experiment from a different perspective. This one. We added a twist, a card trick, so that sometimes they uh, choose one face but end up with the other one. Watch carefully. The volunteer chooses the card on the left, but Petter swaps the card and presents the photo that was seen on the right and was actually rejected. It is a card trick, but it's a cheap card trick, based on something uh, that the magicians just call black on black. So for each card, there's a hidden card behind it, which is actually the opposite one. Where we slide the other card over, the black card is hidden. And then Petra just uses his arm to slide it down into the, his lap. I mean, it's two parts that's interesting here. First, the fact they don't notice when you switch the pictures. It's interesting in itself, and it's quite, quite surprising. And the second part is, of course, the verbal reports they give, that they actually motivate choices they didn't make. 80% of the people we tested had absolutely no idea that a switch had been made. Since I'm a photographer, I like the way it's lit and looks. It's a puzzling phenomenon. This one? We rely upon the world. The world is dependable. So if you reach for your car keys, you don't end up with the uh, armadillo in your lap <laughs> or something like that. So to summarize, people were told to choose between two faces. Then they were given the face that they didn't choose and asked to explain their choice. And nearly 80% of the subjects would proceed to justify a choice that they didn't make. These researchers conducted a follow-up study using double-ended jam jars, which would allow them to offer a choice, say raspberry, allow the subject to taste, and then reverse the jar for the second taste so that the subject would be tasting the rejected jam, say blackberry then asked the subjects to justify their choice. And again, nearly 80% of the subjects would proceed to explain a choice they didn't make, right on the back of experiencing a different jam. Amazing. Two pots, two jams. But the sleight of hand this time is that both pots contain both jams because they're double-ended. When a volunteer is asked to confirm their choice, they'll be tasting the wrong jam. I like the blue one better. It's less obviously sweet. Taste the oranges more. I thought they both had a nice rich taste. I like the whole berries. And it blended well with the plastic spoon a little bit. You prefer the, the raspberry. Raspberry. But when you tasted it the second time, it was the black curry. Mm -hmm. I had exchanged those. Oh, really? You didn't notice that? I didn't notice. I couldn't tell the difference. We were quite surprised, and especially today, because we used solid tastes, which they should be able to categorize. That is a bit surprising that I don't just identify what it is and then remember that taste. So are we just a bunch of lying, self-deluded people? <laughs> no, we're not. I mean, it's not a life or death thing. No one will kill you if you don't detect that you've got the wrong jam. But it's still interesting to see where this effect ends, and we don't know that really yet. 
Finally, the researchers considered more serious choices, this time involving politics. We did an experiment right before a Swedish general election. Before each election, all the major media outlets construct what's known as an election compass. It's a set of questions that separates these two coalitions. Things like whether the tax on gasoline should be increased. So in order to test political preferences and self-knowledge, we constructed our own election compass. But of course, there was also a trick involved, another collaboration with magicians. And then they started to fill in the questionnaire. But while they were filling in, we were filling in an opposite, where we would mark down the opposite answer for each of them. Then we would hide this under the notepad, and when it was time to discuss, we would simply glue that one over their answers. So here we have changed all of their answers, or enough of their answers, to create an opposite profile. And then we would ask them, okay, so why do you think the tax on gasoline should be increased? Mm. So what we find here is, again, very few participants detect this manipulation. And the people that detect here, they don't, no one says, hang on, you manipulated my answer. It's they say, well, I must have misunderstood the question or there is something wrong with them having done it, right? So they attribute it to themselves. But what we find is that there is so few people detecting that we managed to get 92 of the percent of the participants to accept that their profile had been switched from left to right or from right to left. So in terms of takeaway, to begin with, even cheap magic tricks are highly effective. And when you explain it afterwards, they often also refuse to believe that you had manipulated these choices. So the older man in the movie here, so he actually refused to believe it until we showed him the video. Of, okay, so actually you prefer this one, but you ended up with this one. That was the only reason he would believe that we actually manipulated his choices. This is a strong effect. And this relates to change blindness. We don't recognize when something has been altered by sleight of hand. But it also shows that we can be choice blind, unaware of our actual choices or decisions. And finally, it shows that our reasoning for our choices is often constructed and we are capable of justifying even choices we didn't make if we believe we made those choices. This shows how difficult it is to know yourself and that we should be skeptical of answers to the question why. We're just so good at generating reasons. So applied to our Batman-Superman fight, it relates to tactical or combat choices, like when to throw a punch, dodge, or run away. We're talking about choices made in the moment. So again, applied to the fight, Superman can feel that he's entirely control that he's making all the choices and decisions and he will quickly in his own mind rationalize why he made those decisions even if those decisions were actually being forced tricked or guided by batman as i said this explains why we fall for magic tricks and why we're susceptible to forces even without recollection so superman falling for a magic trick doesn't make him dumb quite the opposite it makes him human and intelligent you, in this piece by Adam Gopnik, you talk about how that, in fact, you need intelligence to appreciate magic. Being fooled is not the same as being a fool. And magicians are very actively using the audience's intellect against you. You know, you can't really do magic for a preschool child who doesn't understand the difference between what reality is and what magic is. You have to understand what reality is before you can recognize the contrast between that and magic. And so without intellect, magic doesn't really exist. And although it 
it's very counterintuitive and difficult for people to grasp. Any magician will tell you that the more intelligent an audience, in many ways, the easier they are to fool. And this is why, among other things, besides magic, scientists and academics often are duped by psychic fraud and things like that because they don't believe that they could be fooled by a so-called simple trick. But magicians don't make our living just fooling stupid people. As we mentioned earlier, children often break magic because they don't have the same knowledge of the world. It lets them see with fresh eyes and without assumption, but it also means that they don't have the same level of domain knowledge upon which to draw. Magic has often been linked to critical thinking. I wonder if it's your experience that magicians, because of the way they learn about trickery and psychology and whatnot, do you believe that that sort of engenders a little bit more natural skepticism? I would say it's often true, but not always. Importantly, there is a long-standing history, a connection between magicians and critical thinking going back centuries. Of course, very visible with Harry Houdini debunking the seance mediums of the 19th century and James Randi debunking psychics today. So there is a long-standing connection between the two, although I wouldn't say that all magicians are innately skeptical either. The idea of choice is so prevalent in magic, it's impossible to pick just one trick that represents what appears to be an imposition on free will. I'm choosing this one only because the magician is a Superman fan. He wears a Superman ring and uses Superman's symbol in his act. It is a visual act, so you can pause and go to the show notes to watch the video, or it might be an interesting experiment to try and play along over audio. Welcome back. This is going to be incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of the most amazing men I've ever met. The brilliant, the incredible, Leo Souchard. So, Leo, what are you going to do for so us? So, we're going to do some experiments about influencing and mind reading. Now, about the mind influencing, it's kind of interesting. We can try to do something with the entire audience. Let's ask the entire audience to do a circle, a big circle. Can you do this? Let's do a big circle, but don't do anything yet, just a circle. Now, um, most people, when, they, when you ask them to draw something simple, most people will draw a smiley face or a house or a tree. This is the most common things. Now, uh, to give you an example of something a little bit more uh, complicated, for example, yeah. uh, I mean, if you ask me, I would draw uh, like the Superman sign because yeah. I love Superman. Or maybe... Like on your ring. Yes, it's my ring, exactly. Uh, or maybe if someone is religious, he might draw like a, like a cross or something like that. I don't yeah. know. I'm just giving you a few examples. Like a, a mountain is a good... Uh, a strange-looking mountain is a good idea. <laughs> or maybe... No, or maybe, maybe like a... I don't know, like a, like a rabbit or something like that. I mean, uh-huh. everybody can draw different stuff. You have something, don't say it. In fact, when I'm talking about drawing, everyone here is trying to think of their drawing. Okay, individual drawing. So, you know, at the same time, you're going to go behind your desk and do your drawing, but don't show anyone. Just do it. So we Just draw in the circle. Yes, yes, yes. Not yes. part of the... Okay. Yes, inside. Do it over there. Make sure nobody can see. Make sure. Take your time. I get paid by the hour, so it's fine. <laughs> you got it? Yeah. Put it upside down so nobody can see. But, you know, you can never predict what you're going to draw. So here's what's going to happen. Dear audience, please stand up. All of you stand up. Now... Do you agree that everyone can draw anything they want? I just gave you an example of a Superman and a rabbit and a a, a cross or a or a, or a crazy mountain. mountain. So anything can happen, anything can do. I want everyone, when I say now, listen carefully, you're gonna do your drawing, okay? By the way, don't draw uh, a bunny, don't draw a ha, don't, don't, I hope it's not one of those. It's not one of those, one of those? I hope so. And, and when you're ready, you're gonna do your drawing and hold it close to your chest. So not even your partners can see. You're gonna do it as quickly as possible. Look at me, take a deep breath, everyone. Do your drawing now, quickly, Go. and hold it close to your chest. 
So nobody can see, so nobody can see. No, no, listen, uh, spontaneously. You, listen carefully. Did I tell you what to draw? No. Did I tell, did I give instructions to you to do a specific drawing? No. This is from your choices, correct? Yeah. Correct. It's, it's really from their minds. Just for, just for fun. You, we, do we know each other personally? No, and you seem to be very happy about it, by the way. <laughs> um, can you show us what you did? Just show me your drawing, just show me your drawing. This is interesting. And uh, uh, all the way over there with the glasses, yes, you, who holds it. Can you turn yours? What is this? This is, uh, this is interesting. God. This is a coincidence. Harry, look, can you show me, can you show me yours? Show me yours, look at this. Um, all the way, uh, I don't know, the, the, all the way uh, next to him, the blonde girl, can you turn yours, please? This is very strange. Come on, man. It, you know what? Turn your drawings now! Look at this! Wait. No. Look at this! Oh my, I'm in shock. So the key part that listeners are missing, as each audience member reveals their drawing, they have each drawn a star, just as James Corden already has. Amazing. <laughs> But you know what's the beautiful part of this? I do know, yes. You do know? I do. Let me see your drawing, James. <laughs> Let me see your drawing! And of course, as a bit of flourish, Lior has an explanation for why. You know what's more beautiful than this? That I managed to influence 200 people to do the exact same thing. I will give you a little hint. Look at the band. They're all doing the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> did it was a subtle influencing because this is not a superman sign this is an s this is not a cross this is a t <gasps> this is not a mountain oh. this is an a and this is not a rabbit it's an r upside down which gives us a star which is exactly what you thought of <laughs> And whether you choose to buy that explanation is up to you. <laughs> okay, let's get back to Batman's story. Before, I pointed out how Magician Lex's props always ended up punctuating his points. Well, Magician Bruce does a similar thing with words. It's not mentalism, but Bruce will use a central word that shapes the narrative of each encounter. Let me give you some examples. With Kanaizev, the word is luck. Saying that becomes the seed for the entire conversation about fortune and misfortune. And subconsciously, Bruce is shaping the narrative that this is a chance encounter, unplanned, unpredicted, entirely random luck. And nothing more, right? <laughs> With Diana, the word is fake. Again, notice how the whole conversation is a push and pull of authenticity and knowledge. I know where the real one is. You don't. Well, actually, I do know the truth. Well, I can see through your act, the real you. I don't think that you do, but the saying is true. And I knew you'd be here. It is already in your car. And so Bruce tried to make it about knowing fakeness, but Diana shows that he doesn't know the truth. With Lex, the word is watching. Here again, we have a duel about knowledge and power. Batman wants to say that everything Lex does, he'll know, and that he has control over Lex's placement. But to be honest, Lex schools Batman in wordplay and counters his oversight with, look at us. 
He lets on that he knows who Batman really is. He lets on that he isn't going to be convicted. He makes it convincing that he's mentally ill. And finally, he shows that he knows that someone even more dreadful is watching, knows, and is coming. So when Batman is unmasked, either in the guise of Bruce or with Lex knowing his identity or with half his mask torn away from the fight, Batman always does this thing when he's doing magic. So what's the magic word with Superman? The word is force. Note Batman's words from his heart as he prepares to kill Superman. I bet your parents taught you that you mean something, that you're here for a reason. My parents taught me a different lesson, dying in the gutter for no reason at all. They taught me the world only makes sense if you force it to. You were never a god. You were never even a man. Please stop to really think about the significance of these lines. These are Batman's last words to the Superman. He fully expects Superman to be dead by his hand in mere moments. Until now, he's refused to engage in dialogue. So these words must mean everything Batman wants to communicate to Superman before he dies. This is the only patter Superman will get to the magic trick. This is the only story that Batman wants to tell. And embedded in that is the psychology of Batman's issue and a narrative that Superman isn't even aware of. What does it matter what our parents taught us? Why is this something to hold against another? So what is he saying? Force has two main definitions. The first is power, the second is compulsion. The power, the energy, the strength to do something, or the coercion or compulsion to do something against someone's will. This taps into the two themes, the two dichotomies of the world's finest and this film. Power and powerlessness. Hope and preparedness. Superman has superpowers Batman does not. Superman does not coerce or compel. Batman does. This is the central conflict at issue. Two sides of the same coin, the same word. Force as in the effect of power. Force as in preparation instead of hope. Will over wishing. Superman feels that Batman uses too much force or violence without due process. Batman feels that Superman is an unaccountable force with too much power. Batman brings both grievances to bear in this battle. He knocks Superman for his power, he knocks Superman for his hope, and like a magician's force, it is both about the power and the imposition, taking away free will or choice. I'm not going to talk too much about power and powerlessness because it's said so explicitly early on by Alfred. It has been analyzed extensively already, but I do want to note that this is more of a yin and yang than a right and wrong, good or bad. As we've already elaborated on in this episode, the significance, impossibility, and magic of Batman is that he does what he does without power. Similarly, it is precisely because Superman has so much power that he cannot do so many things and is held to account in in ways that the powerless are not. So it's the same with hope and preparation. Too much hope without preparation and you're being naive. Too much preparation without hope and you're paranoid and pessimistic. You want and you need both in balance. This is summed up in the centuries-old idiom, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. You can trace translations back to Cicero in 46 BC, but it was popularized by Shakespeare's King Lear in 1605. We know Superman's associated with hope. It's not an S. The symbol of the House of L means hope. And Batman is associated with preparation. Batman with prep time is a meme, the utility belt, and Batman's history of paranoid protocols. Superman is a reaction, not an imposition. He isn't a tyrant or a god. He doesn't preach or push. He just continually rescues in the hopes that mankind will one day join him in the sun. He has to believe in our better nature to operate. He has to not look to 
be Superman. If he's always looking at our dark sides, ills, and sins, he'll lose his human heart and lose that sense of purpose that propels his public persona. Meanwhile, Batman must anticipate and expect our worst in order to be prepared for it. When everyone else says that Superman's a saint, he has to imagine the tyrant to take him down. Those preparations allow him to impose his will upon the world, to shape it as he sees fit, to force it to make sense. Without power, we allow that. The GCPD turn a blind eye and endorse it. But if he had the power of Superman, we would abhor it and call him to account for his unilateral action. So let's dig deep into what Batman wants to say. I bet your parents taught you that you mean something, that you're here for a reason. First, the I bet means that Batman doesn't care, doesn't know, and doesn't care to know. He isn't actually considering any actual parents or real people with that comment. He's only addressing the concept of upbringing, which he didn't want to know about lest it ruin the narrative of his obsession. He doesn't care how Superman was actually raised. He's telling Superman he doesn't care. And this is akin to how Lex casually drops Clark's identity, showing that he knows Superman's history and humanity, but he doesn't care. He's got larger concepts to address which ignore that person. I don't hate the sinner, Clark Joe. I hate the sin, Superman. So Batman is saying, my caricature of you is that you were brought up to believe in purpose, reason, and hope. And in fact, he was. Clark was raised to believe that he was going to change the world one day, a hope of what was to come. And Batman resents this. My parents taught me a different lesson, dying in the gutter for no reason at all. His hope was already stolen. Whatever the real person of his parents wanted for him, Batman thinks it's lost. And it also reinforces the point that the parents in Batman's supervillain monologue are more symbols or concepts than literal. Critics often bemoan the fact that Batman mentioned Superman's parents already, so Martha should have had no impact upon him. But look at how he's abstracted his own parents say nothing of Superman's. His parents, Martha and Thomas Wayne, did not teach him that lesson. Vibrant, alive, and living, they would have never taught him that the world is meaningless. They did not teach him that. It was the world or its circumstances, the tragedy and their loss that taught him that lesson. Yet in this brief statement, they are only props in the formation of his worldview, something he lost, which has warped him. He's robbed his parents of agency. He's ruined their legacy and subconsciously he knows it, which is why a monster erupts from their crypt in his nightmares. A crypt is meant to put the dead to rest while honoring their lives. But Batman has dishonored and discarded their lives while infusing their deaths with all his life and passion. No wonder they haunt him as terrible monsters. Look at how Clark keeps the memory of his father alive compared to how Bruce remembers his parents. Whatever little time Thomas and Martha had with Bruce, there must have been good times, good lessons, happiness, and hope a time before. But the Batman has sealed them all away so that his central memory of them is soiled, a meaningless death in a gutter. Of course, he doesn't mean for all this meaning to come out. What he wants to impress upon Superman is how naive he was to hang to hope. He should have prepared and instead. After all, that was Batman's response to his own tragedy. The world only makes sense if you force it to. Interesting choice of words, right? Like power and powerlessness, we're going to leave the world aside for now. It's already been discussed extensively. Instead, let's look at him choosing to say the words force it to. The power to shape the world and making it act against its will or nature. It's pointless to say this to Superman if they're not in a situation Batman forced, right? 
If Batman didn't force it, Superman would just chalk it up to fortune, fate, luck, or mere circumstance. But Batman is telling Superman the story of the trick. He's saying, the world makes sense because I forced it to. Right now makes sense because I forced it to. And we've been trying to make sense of the battle, but if you interpret everything without the magic trick, right now doesn't make sense. You didn't force Superman to fight. You didn't make him take you to that rooftop. You couldn't have known that this would happen. Those were Superman's choices. You were just lucky. Except Batman is saying the opposite. He's saying, and the spear proves, that this was all part of the plan. That he did indeed force this situation. As Snyder says, the spear is right there. Wait a minute, did he plan every bit? Did he know every move? That same realization is meant to dawn on Superman. He's conscious and being told this story so he'll realize that. Remember, Batman, like Lex, doesn't just want Superman dead. He doesn't plan to assassinate Superman in his sleep or without his knowledge. There is a message that's critical to his catharsis here. Superman was drawn into the trick on many levels, believing that he was making choices, going so far to say, if I wanted it, you'd be dead. But what Batman is saying to Superman is, your will means nothing. Your teachings were delusional. You're not all-powerful, and you don't get to decide or impose your will upon me or this world. I will decide. You can't bring your parents' reasons into this world. You aren't special, just like everyone else. You're vulnerable like everyone else, and you can die like everyone else. And I've been forcing my will upon you this entire time. If you wanted it, I'd be dead. Are you kidding? I've beaten you and brought you to your death. Something I planned for and prepared for in advance. I'm not adapting to you. I'm not having the spear brought to wherever our battle ends. No, I brought you here against your will, without your knowledge. You're not a god. I can kill you. I might hesitate to kill a man, but you were never a man. I will kill you. Except he only needs 50 words to make this bitter tirade, not 500. <laughs> and this makes the climax a companion to the ideas of choice and free will in Man of Steel. BVS shows that choice and free will demand force, either the power to make it or an imposition on others. It's a philosophical point of view, very much tied to the problem of evil, but that's another show. In this moment, Batman's exertion of will strips away Superman's. He's willed a way to win against a Kryptonian in single combat, and he's pathologically driven to proclaim how he's reclaimed so much control by the beautiful lie. To the fallen Batman, this is a triumph. But Martha breaks through all that. Martha forces the frame back to a time before Bruce cast the spell on himself, a time before all the preparation, before he built the Batman. And we get a specific sequence of shots which took me some time to appreciate. First, we see the crypt and the coffin, meant to honor Martha and put her at rest, but which Bruce dug up nightly in his nightmares as fuel for his pledge against crime. Next, we see the gun and the death of the Waynes played out in brief, his father's fist firm against his front, the gun goes off, his father. The gun goes off and pearls fly, his mother. A story within a story, we cut to Bruce falling down the well. The total loss of control, the powerlessness, the fear, the descent. And then Bruce the boy is back in the street still screaming, his mother's last gasp, his father's last word. 
The name Martha took Batman back to a raw, vulnerable state, and no longer does he have all the answers. He goes from, I understand, to, why did you say that? He's outraged because this ruins his narrative, that he knows everything and that this was planned according to his will and control. Superman should be going to his grave in confusion. How did he do that? How is he killing me? But instead, Bruce is the one feeling confusion again. After his parents' death, he was driven by an obsession to use it to make sense of the world. And that need for sense stays his hand as he demands answers from Superman. So much of BVS is about humility. We've already discussed Clark and Lex learning to lose in our Endgame episode, but let's just briefly look at Bruce under that lens. Bruce is at the end of his rope, the end of his career, and we're presented with an endless sequence of humiliations for him. His parents' death, the fall of Wayne Financial, he's haunted and unable to sleep, the inability to infiltrate where he's invited, and even then, his efforts are intercepted by another. He tries to confront her, acting superior, but gets put in his place. And then he's caught and killed in another nightmare, and his lies fail to convince Alfred, who argues against all his points. And then his attempt to catch the kryptonite ends with a busted Batmobile, and the single employee saved becomes a human bomb. All of these piling up one after another. And so, can you imagine just how much pent-up frustration with failure Bruce was feeling, going into the planning and preparation for this trick against Superman? How much identity that he would have wrapped up in it, invested in it working as planned. And this isn't my interpretation or analysis. This is Bruce's. In his own words, this single battle with Superman is more important than 20 years of fighting criminals. This may be the only thing I do that matters. This is about the future of the world. This is my legacy. This was his entire life's philosophy put into a single work meant to be his masterpiece. Is it any wonder that Bruce flies into a rage when it gets marred by the mention of Martha? Lois arrives with the answer. And when Bruce takes in that it's Superman's mother in a human way, it snaps into focus that all his force did not let him take command of his life, did not honor Martha, did not free him from the fall with its feelings of fear and powerlessness. It just made him flail out of control, descend into the darkness and death dealing, and to force those same feelings upon another. All at once, it dawns upon him it had been a lie. Martha tears apart the illusion. He can no longer pretend that Superman is inhuman. He can no longer pretend that he was doing this for mankind. The entire facade falls apart and he's no longer fooling himself with a magic trick that managed to last over three decades. In its place, the kind of magic that we long for. The kind of thing that we sometimes believe impossible when we've lost heart. The magic of change transformation, and redemption. Batman goes from somebody obsessed with Superman's destruction to a friend who mourns his loss, but carries his hope into the next film. Every humiliation in BVS changes from an open wound to proud scars. Before, Bruce bristles when his closest confidant, Alfred, even suggests that the Batman is changing or ineffective compared to Bruce Wayne. He's so sensitive to even the smallest slight. But in what little we've seen of Justice League, Batman can now take a joke 
in a humble and self-deprecating way. Batman isn't insecure about his inability against Doomsday. When rhetorically asked what his powers are, pointing out that he has none, Batman simply acknowledges his wealth instead. When Batman isn't able to convince Arthur to join or tries to be cagey with Diana, Bruce is able to roll with it rather than brooding over monitors or arguing with Diana. Others poke fun at him and the tropes associated with the Batman. I didn't think you were real, dressed like a bat, sitting in the dark, and vanishing rudely. <laughs> What made this dramatic change where he couldn't take a hint from a surrogate father, but now he can take a hit from an almost total stranger? Batman is no longer so self-serious because he's been released from his self-sacred vow. Built into Batman's issues with Superman is a silent accusation that mirrors Lex's confession. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. As we've noted before, Superman does save Lex from the fist of an abomination, and likewise, the the silent accusation is that no one with power saved Bruce's parents from a senseless death devoid of reason. But Superman uses his power to save Bruce with a meaningful death, overflowing with reason, purpose, and promise. Bruce is no longer trying to stop his own freefall by any means possible. He's trying to follow Superman's example to be his best, even when that means admitting weakness or needing others, to need friends to play well with others. No part of Superman's story should make you think that that's easy, but Batman's story gives us hope of transformation. Like Superman, magic is a message of hope. Professor Haas concludes his talk on this with a fallen figure in the palm of his hand. In the theater of the impossible, magicians show us, actually and symbolically, they show us that the impossible is possible. Ultimately, magic is a message of hope, and in the space of that hope, I believe, lies the energizing promise of our transformation. Now, with all this in mind, I have one final piece of magic to share with you all. This will take us to a thoughtful place. It is based on a poem by the Peruvian poet Cesar Vallejo. When the battle was over and the fighter lay dying, one man came to him and said, Do not die, I love you so. But alas, the soldier went on dying. Then twenty came and they repeated it. Come back, don't go, we love you so. But alas, the soldier went on dying. Then fifty came, one hundred, ten thousand crying out, There is so much love in the world, can't anything be done about death? But alas, the soldier went on dying. And then one day, millions of people gathered round, all the inhabitants of the earth. And on that day, they called out with one voice, come back, come back, please come back. We love you so, come back. And on that day, the soldier opened his eyes and on that day, the young man began to rise, breathing life and breathing love. And when finally he stood once again on his two feet, he embraced the first man and began to walk. Thank you. The figure rises up. And in November, Superman will too. <laughs> Okay, out of tricks, out of time. I've rambled on long enough. 
So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Some editing endnotes. Once again, I find myself looking at a mountain of clips that didn't make the cut. The first concept for this episode had me exhaustively looking through how Superman's choices are far more constrained than you think. But parsing a decision tree like that gets really tedious really quickly, and it becomes almost impossible to prune the branches once magic is in the mix. I recorded ramblings on using lead paint to make Superman subconsciously stay within the bounded area, and how to make Batman's dramatic chair turn reveal work, but in editing, I made a conscious choice to put the focus back on the black box of the magic trick. Philosophically, if you get that approach, you should be able to address choices by analogy to a magic trick, and I think that's more meaningful than knowing the mechanics of specific tricks that Batman could have used. Maybe. I debated whether to share more specific forces and techniques that would have made the trick entirely rational and very workable. And to be clear, I'm not part of some inner sanctum threatening exposure. I'm not even a guy who knows a guy. I'm just someone who loves research libraries and isn't above brainstorming Batman at a magic shop. At the same time, I was influenced by how carefully Radiolab guarded a fairly conventional book test trick. And I decided that the analog spirit of the magic community requires that the curious use books, acquaintance, apprenticeship, and membership to learn. So for myself, I'm satisfied in it making sense, but at the expense of being able to say it. As much as I want to show off my research and insight, I also want to respect the subculture's customs. And even if that casts doubts, and it should, so be it, I can live with that. A little along those lines, it comes easy to claim that my silent concerns about BVS came after the fact, but by way of verification, I did share some of them in private with Sam Otten of the Justice League Universe podcast, which is a fantastic scene-by-scene breakdown of these films. Do yourself a favor and check that podcast out. But I also hinted at exhaustion at answering these kinds of questions in my first podcast after release. But both in my conversation with Sam and in that podcast, I pointed out that sometimes the answers come later. And indeed, in this case, it did for me. So by now, I hope you know that a recurring theme of this show is to be slow to judge, to not write people off too fast without keeping your mind open to their redemption. Things aren't always what they seem, just like Batman showing Superman that he had predicted where the spear should be. And I want to thank Fawbish on Twitter for helping me find the source of that Snyder interview. Like the Kryptonite Spear episode, a lot of the underlying research ended up getting cut in favor of analyzing the film instead. I'm still holding on to all this material on nukes and more from that episode. Episode, but I don't really see how this magic-related research is ever going to return, so I'm going to mention maybe more of them than I normally would in these endnotes. But in no particular order, um, in the fantasy episode, I cited Lewis being able to recall any page, but I had to bite my tongue from derailing that story by explaining how this feat is accomplished in magic and called a book test. There are endless variations, but it's one of my favorite tricks. While Lewis was no doubt well-read, I'm inclined to believe that he was performing forming a book test. The sixth Narnia novel was The Magician's Nephew, and the magician in the story is the sort in this episode, not the fantasy type. It shows that Lewis is familiar with magic tricks within, and so it's natural to suspect a book test. 
but I haven't done any follow-up research to definitively say one way or the other. Um, I recorded a variation of the gray elephant in Denmark, and I decided against leaving it in, but if you're not familiar, it's easy to look up, and it's one of the tricks that you can perform in the podcast format. I'm just so happy that we get together in our own club. Fans of the film are people after my own heart. They know that insights can take a little digging with a spade. Patience and an open mind and the desire to dig for diamond. What can I say but the seven of clubs? There was so much history that I had to set aside, so much on Houdini, Houdin, Milliers, not to mention more modern magicians like David Burglis, David Copperfield, David Blaine, and if your name isn't David, it should still start with D, like Dynamo DMC or Darren Brown. <laughs> I didn't get to include all the interactions between magicians and spycraft, for example, how Houdini might have been a spy or how Burglass was a consultant for James Bond, and I didn't get into Houdini death, which has an interesting twist if you read the book that we cite to. I also didn't get into the phenomenon where some magicians begin to believe in their own powers, which is kind of the, because I'm Batman, meme brought to life, right? (laughs) Uh, I resisted the urge to play IMDB Six Degrees of Separation in the magic world because it's all about networking. The prestige is positively packed with people who've performed in comic book movies. And, And another fun fact is that the three phases of magic in that book were entirely invented by the author's own admission. Granted, the mid-90s is a quarter century ago, but his usage of the prestige goes no further back than that. Even today, though, dyed-in-wool magicians will tell you it's an ancient term dating back to antiquity. (laughs) David Kwong tells a great story about a trick that he played on Edgar Wright, and that kept getting put in, pulled out, moved around the episode, because I just badly wanted to force it to fit, but it didn't. If I can, I'll put a version at the end, and I should mention that there's a twist ending to that story exclusive to the book. I also have amazing stories by David Burglass and Larry Fong, but rather than abridge them, you'll find links to those in the show notes. Um, there's a version of this episode that's all about Larry Fong, and in truth, that was the original inspiration for the episode title. Originally, this episode was going to be called Force. But pretty quickly, I realized that that wasn't really consistent with the spirit of the show. I generally avoid commenting too much on the lives of the filmmakers. So that stuff isn't ever going to be an episode, but it's always great to increase your appreciation for someone's work by learning more about them. Okay, but I will share this one thing. Uh, The Three of Clubs is in BVS twice, and I'll leave it at that. In my research, I made a concerted effort to look at magic outside the Western tradition, and I did this research to explain why Batman's magic trick was so stripped down and utilitarian more a military maneuver. But then it got bogged down into the history and the mechanics of the trick. And when I cut the mechanics out, it didn't make sense to keep the history in. So suffice to say that when used in combat, the mission of magic is different. And we may revisit that with the Art of War, which is a theme I'm trying to graft onto the Doomsday Fight episode. But I put that one aside temporarily when I got inspired and excited to work on this episode. One of the side effects of being familiar with the United States Patent and Trademark Office is the ability to look up magic tricks and effects that have been patented. If you didn't know, that means that the method must be published to obtain patent protection, which is not a great thing for something ostensibly meant to be a secret. As such, magic is among the hardest things to protect under our intellectual property laws. Penn & Teller presented a recent case study, which is worth checking out, but the community of magic is the protection. 
Job recently started the Alliance of Magicians, an organization that blackballs any performer who reveals a magician's secret. And the community of magic is almost as interesting as the magic itself. In a way, it presents a real-world working model of how comic book secret societies and secret identities might actually work. I did a short segment on the parallels and possibilities, but I think you can figure it out from just the idea. And despite all the things that I edited out, I'm really happy to finally get this episode out. Because when I said that I loved Batman's story in this film all those episodes back, I really meant it. I could completely identify with wanting control over your life, having something beyond your control blow through it, changing everything, and then obsessing over performance and perfection to prevent anything similar from ever happening again. And it can completely push your buttons to burn out if cracks start to appear, if others don't take your preparations or worries seriously, or if your plans fall apart. And that's part of why it can be hard for me to watch the Batman-Superman fight. Absolutely, I feel for Superman losing time, losing hope, holding back, but growing desperate. But also, Batman on the brink of the curse of getting what he wants. No one but Batman could go on as long as he had in such a broken way. It's a case of his will, strength, and determination being his worst enemy because it allowed him to keep going when no one else would or could. But when he finally breaks, I know that feeling too. It's hard to describe. You can be so completely driven after a thing and then BAM! suddenly be completely disgusted by the exact same thing. You literally feel sick to the pit of your stomach thinking about everything you invested and how badly you wanted it. But then you're shown and given grace. In Batman's case, he's literally forgiven by the man he wanted to kill. And even more than that, that man entrusts him with his mother Martha. And what I love about that is that everything you've done, all your work, all your effort, your life, your story, even if you've been chasing the wrong thing, it can all be redeemed in some way. It's not like it all gets thrown out the window. It wasn't a waste. No, we see the most explosive, exciting, and brilliant application of Batman's crime-fighting skills in the Martha rescue. Only with his 20 years in Gotham could he do that. Batman can still use his gifts, his training, even his inclinations once his purpose is redeemed. It's not good to be a control freak, but we do need planners, people who prepare like Bruce. And we're going to see those preparations as he assembles the Justice League in November. I can't wait. Lastly, I had a lot of trouble trying to find any music to play us out. There are almost no songs about the performance art of magic, and every other song out there mentions magic in a general or fantasy sense. So the best that I could do was this short song from Batman the Brave and the Bold episode, The Mayhem of the Music Meister. The Music Meister is performed by Neil Patrick Harris, who's a magician and the former president of the board of directors of the Magic Castle in Hollywood. The song is Death Trap, sung while Batman proves his abilities as an escape artist with Black Canary, performed by Gray Delisle. Please enjoy. You're the answer, son. Grinding, ropes binding, coils winding for a super sap <laughs> death trap. Pistons panging, clamps a clanging, spring sprang in, it's the last lap. Death trap. No encore for you this time, Batman. And I'm afraid it's closing night for my little birdie, too. 
A shame. They could have made such sweet music. But now the world awaits my final number, and I shouldn't keep them. Acid steaming, blaze gleaming, lasers beaming, final nightcap, death trap. Crushing, flesh mushing, gore gushing, it's a dirt nap. Death trap. Death trap. Death trap. <sighs> Was the singing really necessary? You're the answer, son. And it starts with a story out of Hollywood. I live in Los Angeles. And my good friend Edgar Wright, the film director, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So I was not surprised when he called me up and asked me to come over and teach him how a magician and a con man thinks. The afternoon did not get off to a great start. I showed up about 15 minutes late. I was with my friend Blake Voigt, who's a fantastic magician and trick creator, and we couldn't find the house, and we were, we were apologizing profusely, but uh, everything was fine once we started performing tricks in the living room. Edgar was happy, we were happy, but then we finished, and Edgar said, show me your best trick. I'm like, Edgar, we just, we just did our coolest stuff, but uh, okay, we have, a, we have an idea. Do you have a driveway? Do you have like an outdoor space that we can go to? And Edgar said, well, I have a backyard. Let's go to the backyard instead. So we went out through the kitchen to the veranda and we stood in this lovely backyard and I said to Edgar, name any playing card. Absolute free choice. He said, five of hearts. And then we said, point anywhere you want in the yard. And he pointed at a bush and I said, I want you to go over to that bush and get down in the dirt at the mulch at the base of that bush and dig. And that's what he did. And he found a folded up playing card and it was the five of hearts. <laughs> now, normally I keep the method behind a secret like this to myself. I do not share, I do not reveal the secrets, but because Edgar had asked me to come over and teach him how a magician thinks, Blake and I pulled out an iPad and we played him this video here. This is Blake burying 52 playing cards in Edgar's backyard three hours before the meeting. And we memorized exactly where they were going. Now this is how magic works. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's forethought, it's anticipation, it's planning. You're the answer, son. It was really surreal. Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, I have yeah. to say. Did you know that Wonder Woman loves magic? I did not know that. I would sit there and then you see Wonder Woman and she's radiant and powerful and badass and beautiful and everything, right? Uh -huh. And that outfit. And then someone did see her and she just starts strutting towards me from across the stage looking at me. Oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> and she'd come up to me and say, uh, in her Israeli awesome accent, she would say, Hey Larry, got any magics for me today? <laughs> and she'd want a magic trick like quite often like yeah. to start the day and it's so surreal it's Wonder Woman yeah what the, the hell yeah. it was so cool you're the answer son well you know Superman uh -huh. he's not even from here <laughs> he's from another planet <laughs> and he was born with all this like rays coming out of his eyes and stuff and he can fly etc right got superpowers you know what my superpower is what my mind <laughs>
with Harley Quinn Turn two face to black and blue face I 100% am not Bruce Wayne Who's the manliest man? With the buns of steel Who could choke hold a bear? Who never skips leg day? Who always pays their taxes? You're the answer, son. Wait, wait, wait. Batman back in. Forgot to drop the mic.